0: Welcome to Women on Wealth, a podcast by women for women. Our mission is to empower women to embrace the discussion around wealth, demystify finance and market-related topics, and break down the emotions that surround these decisions. Your host is Julina Ogilvie, partner and wealth advisor with Principal Wealth Partners. She's a certified private wealth advisor and a certified investment management analyst with over 25 years of industry experience. Well,
1: welcome to Women on Wealth. This is the 64th episode. And the topic today is going to be a very interesting one. It's financial infidelity and its impact on marriage and divorce. And I have with us um, our very guest speaker, Tracy Conan, who is a forensic accountant. She is the founder of Divorce Money Guide. And she has been doing fraud investigation for more than 25 years. She's a certified public accountant a certified in financial forensics and master analyst in financial forensics. So lots of letters behind the name. But Tracy has also been featured in the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Forbes, and on ABC, Fox, and NBC. So you have been one busy lady. Congratulations and welcome.
2: Thank you. I have made the rounds in trying to get the word out about women protecting themselves financially in marriage And in divorce, as you mentioned, you know, my product is the divorce money guide. So I talk a lot about divorce, but the information I have, even for women who are in happy, secure relationships and marriages, it's very applicable to them because they can learn about protecting themselves and thinking ahead. What if something went south someday?
1: Yeah. I think that this is a conversation for any woman that is in a relationship, regardless of what that relationship is. Is that fair to say? It is
2: absolutely fair to say.
1: Let's talk first about the role of a forensic accountant. It's so niche, and you have a very interesting way that you found it. And if you can share it, that'd be great.
2: Sure. I was a criminology major in college, and my intention was to one day be a prison warden. And (laughs) in the process of taking my criminology courses, I took an elective class called Financial Crime Investigation. And that's what sparked my interest in doing fraud investigations. So some people have not heard the phrase forensic accountant before. It's as simple as I find money. I do fraud investigations. A lot of that is in the corporate world where executives are stealing money or doing other shenanigans with the finances of a company. It's potentially companies that are fighting with each other over money issues, contracts gone bad, things like that. And I testify as an expert witness in court and say, you know, here's here's the truth about the numbers. And some of the work that I do as a forensic accountant is in the divorce space. So I have been working on divorces for wealthy people for the last 20 years. And then last year, I created the Divorce Money Guide as a solution to bring some forensic accounting support to regular people who are going through divorce, who maybe don't have millions of dollars on the line, can't afford ten or twenty thousand dollars to hire a forensic accountant, but still need some guidance because they have questions and concerns about the money.
1: Yeah, no, I I love it. And and when you began this career, forensic accounting really wasn't around. I mean, a lot of people still don't understand what it is. So, how have you seen how have you seen this role transform? And you've, you you might have answered a little bit already with starting with the corporate side and moving to the high net worth side?
2: Certainly when I was in school, forensic accounting was not a phrase that we ever heard. Although the career did exist, I don't know if they called themselves that, but we certainly didn't hear that career as accountants. And so when I started my consulting practice back in 2000, can you believe it's been that long that I've been in business for myself? There was really a lot of education in the marketplace that I had to do as far as what a forensic accountant was. And I didn't really even still use the phrase forensic accountant. I always called myself a fraud investigator because I found that was easier for people to understand. Where sure. I got started around the time when we had the big frauds Enron. Tyco, WorldCom, might ring a bell with people. And that was actually really helpful to me in launching my business because people were becoming more aware of the issue of fraud. And so it was always a good talking point. It made it more understandable and relatable for them.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. And so we talk a lot about financial infidelity. Mm -hmm. How do you define that?
2: I define it as any lie about the money between partners and that lie should be one that matters right when it comes to little white lies maybe you went shopping and uh you bought a pair of shoes and hid them under the bed because you just didn't want to have that conversation with your husband about another pair of shoes probably not financial infidelity however if it's a larger more significant purchase where you know really that dollar amount matters that um, concealing of that purchase matters. When it it you know escalates to where it's something that really matters when it comes to the money, then I, I'm more likely to refer to it as financial infidelity. So any lie, that can be things like concealed purchases, going against agreements that we have about how money is going to be spent, hiding money, opening secret accounts, using a secret credit card, Right. spending on things that are um, non-marital, like an affair or like an expensive hobby that your spouse doesn't approve of. So there's a lot of things that could fall under that umbrella of financial infidelity.
1: No, that's a, it's, it's a big sort of catch-all phrase. And yes. I, I don't think it's an easy one to answer, but those were great examples. So thank you.
2: Well, I do tell people that you know your partner and you, I, I think most people know in their heart whether your partner would feel betrayed by whatever you have done with the money whether it's keeping a secret about it spending on a certain something going against an agreement you know if your partner would be upset about that and if they feel if you know that they'd feel upset about it you've probably crossed the line yep yeah, fair
1: and and a big one here that i'm thinking of is we all delegate in our in our relationships or marriage, our responsibilities. So, there is typically one spouse that is not as involved mm-hmm. in the finances. So, what kind of conversations should these couples be having when you have this situation?
2: When you have a potential situation of financial infidelity. Those are hard conversations to have. If you are in the position where you think your spouse is engaged in financial infidelity, I actually first recommend that you don't say anything. Mm. I am very much into protecting yourself. And before you say anything, I always advise my clients to go online to whatever accounts you have legal access to, download statements, gather information. If you have financial documents in the house, make copies, put them in a safe place. That might be tax returns, wills, trusts, contracts, insurance policies, any kind of financial stuff that is around. If you can make a copy and put it in a secure place, that's really important, and here's why. I don't wanna be all doom and gloom about it, but if someone is engaged in some significant financial infidelity, you have a significant problem in your marriage. Your likelihood of ending up in divorce is much greater than the average marriage. When people head down that path towards divorce, it is so, so common for your name to be taken off an account, documents to disappear, your access to be taken away. That's why I advise my clients gather the financial information and put it somewhere secure first before you let on that you know about this financial infidelity.
1: Okay. That's great. And and a a follow-up question maybe to that is what if you don't have access to these accounts. How do you have that conversation with your spouse or partner about gaining access to it?
2: Whether you have financial infidelity or not, let's just say average marriage, you want to get access to the finances. So I'm always advising people to have as non-confrontational conversation about that as possible. And I get it. In some marriages, you might have a spouse where the minute you bring this up, they're going to fly off the handle, no matter how non-confrontational you try to be. So I'm sorry if that's your reality, that's a tougher one. But again, going back to the average marriage where you can have a normal conversation with your partner or spouse, um, I recommend the easiest way that I've found for my clients is saying to your husband, I'm really concerned. What if something happened to you? What if you were in a car accident and you ended up in a coma? What if you had a heart attack and you passed away? I don't know where our money is, how much we have, how the bills are paid, what's on auto pay and what's not. I'd like to start learning a little bit more about our money so that if something tragic ever did happen, I would be able to focus on helping you get well or focus on my grief versus being concerned about, oh my gosh, what? how am I going to manage the money when I don't even know where it is? Right.
1: So, so true. Thank you for bringing that up. And it's possible to find these hidden
2: accounts, correct? Oh, of course it's possible to find hidden <laughs> accounts because I always say in the average situation, you know, again, we're not talking about the wealthy people where they have complicated overseas things and multiple mm-hmm. businesses and all those kinds of things. If we're talking about the normal American family, or Canadian family, as it may be, um, Mm -hmm. that has, you know, you each have a job and and, and a regular paycheck and things like that. What I found is that the ways that the money is hidden aren't all that tricky. There's some pretty predictable ways and they're pretty easy to find. And let me give you an example. That would be great. So it's typical for the spouse to have a secret bank account that you never knew existed, only in their name, They've been putting money in that account, accumulating God knows how much money there. The most common way that we find that account is by them making a transfer from your joint checking account to their new secret account. And the reason why they're willing to do that, well, number one, they've got to get money into that new account somehow. Number two... They know you're not looking at the monthly bank statements. They know you're not logging into online banking and looking at the transactions and asking questions. In many marriages, as we said, there's this division of duties and one partner is taking care of the money and the other one is probably rarely, if ever, looking at the stuff. So he feels perfectly uh, entitled to go ahead and transfer money from the joint account to that secret account because you're never going to look. And so it's super easy for us to find if we're willing to get those statements and take a look at them. Yep. And it's almost like
1: hidden it in plain sight, right? Yes. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Oh, So are there, are there any other red flags that kind of come up when you think about this or...
2: Well, so we talk about red flags of financial fraud or red flags of financial infidelity. And those are warning signs that something might be going south with your money. So I always like to say it's not proof yet of fraud, but it's a warning sign that fraud may be occurring. And I like to teach about the red flags because, I mean, the first step to getting control of your money Um, Getting what you're entitled to in your divorce, if you should get divorced, the first step is recognizing that there is a problem. So I teach people to look for things like changes in behavior. Maybe they're becoming more secretive about the money, more secretive about their whereabouts. Maybe they are locking you out of accounts. Maybe you had access to log into online banking before you go to log in one day and you find your password that you have doesn't work. And maybe you and your husband were sharing a password. And so you say to him, hey, I was trying to get into online banking. And uh, did you change the password? Oh, yeah, I accidentally got locked out. I had to change the password. I don't remember what it is. I'm going to have to get back to you with that. You know, they stonewall you. Mm. Those kinds of things are suspicious. And I ask people to trust your gut with that. If that doesn't feel quite right, you probably have a problem. Wow. Okay.
1: And so, so if you do suspect your spouse, how do you protect
2: yourself? Well, first, if you have these suspicions, I want you to think them through, think about how many of the suspicions you have. And I know because most of your audience has never been around fraud before. They don't know, should I be worried? Should I not be worried? Am I making a mountain out of a molehill? So I have a red flag quiz that they can take. It'll take only three to four minutes, 15 questions asking you how you and your spouse manage the money, some of the signs you may have seen. And in the end, I return to you the result of, are you at low risk of fraud, high risk of fraud, et cetera. So you've got that baseline. And let's say you take my quiz and it comes back and says, you're at high risk of financial fraud in your marriage. It goes back to, again, protecting yourself by gathering information, just like we talked about before. Number one step, start gathering as much financial information as you have access to. Again, if your name is on an account, a bank account, investment, credit card, you have legal access to that and you can get the statements, whether that's online, whether that's walking into a bank branch and asking for them, you can get those and do that before your name gets taken off an account. Do things like talk to an attorney, go have a private meeting with an attorney. It doesn't mean you're filing divorce. It just means you're understanding what your rights are in the state that you live in, because the laws vary by state. You want to talk to an attorney to understand in your situation, what might be some of the issues that are going to come up. And then do things like establish a new email address that your spouse doesn't know about one that you know for sure isn't logged in on any old phone or old laptop or tablet that might be in a closet somewhere. You know, a few months ago, I found an old phone of mine in a closet. And I thought, well, I haven't used this phone, gosh, for six or seven years. Is is there anything on it? So I charged it and I turned it on. And do you know, the second I turned it on, it connected to Wi-Fi and started downloading all of my current emails. So that's why I recommend people get a brand new email address so that could never happen. And if you're communicating with a divorce attorney or something like that, your spouse wouldn't have access to that.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's, those are some great points. Thank you. And what are the most common places that spouses hide money? I know you talked about other investment accounts, but is there anything else that comes to mind?
2: Well, we talked about the secret accounts. Uh, One common thing is not depositing all of their paychecks into the joint account, And so that might be, um, you know, either having part of a paycheck siphoned off or a bonus check or an overtime check doesn't go into your account. Now, I know these days with direct deposit, um, you can pretty much predict what's going to be deposited. And it's pretty routine. But people sometimes forget that I can go to my employer one day. I can walk right into the payroll department and fill out a form and say, take a thousand dollars of every paycheck and send it to this other account instead. And so if you're not looking, it's really easy for someone to siphon off some money that way. And secret credit cards are really, really common. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yep. And I know. Oh, go ahead. I know you want to know how would we ever find a secret credit card because it's secret, right? (laughs) So I'm going to tell you how we find the secret credit card the same way we find the secret bank account. They will pay that secret credit card out of your joint checking account because usually they're too lazy to try to pay it from Mm -hmm. somewhere else. So that's the most common way that we're going to find it. And it's really interesting because many times that secret credit card is going to be at the same credit card company that you already have a credit card as a family. So I like to use Citibank as an example. Most families, most normal families, they have one or two credit cards that husband and wife both have a card for the account. And we put all of our stuff on that, you know? On those one or two cards. And so you have the Citibank card that you're normally using and he wants to get a secret credit card. He goes and also gets a Citibank card. Why? Because if you were to look at the bank account and you see a payment to Citibank, it's not going to raise any suspicions with you. Yeah. You already know, sure, we pay Citibank. The way that we discover that there is that secret second card is by going through a year's worth of statements and counting up how many times Citibank was paid. Hmm. city bank should likely be paid 12 times a year, once a month. If you were to find 16 payments to Citibank over the course of a year, you'd want to start asking questions. Okay.
1: I actually never thought of that. That's fantastic. Thank you.
2: But it's so simple, right? You, so don't, simple. Need, you don't need any accounting expertise. You don't need to even be good with numbers to go through and count up how many times was Citibank paid?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and I have to say, I had an episode two- Two episodes ago was with Eve Rodsky, who wrote Fair Play, and she talks a lot about delegating the role of a household amongst Mm -hmm. spouses, and she physically has cards where you pick and choose. And She said the one card you do not ever keep for yourself that you rotate back and forth between the two is the money management. It's the Mm -hmm. financial investment. It's so that you both have an awareness and are in control and understand your your reason for doing that is a little bit different than hers, but it's interesting that it's coming to the same con- conclusion. So I I just had to bring that up. So thank you.
2: I love it. I and I love that idea of these cards. That's a yeah. great way to think about it.
1: I know. I gotta get my hands on them. So <laughs> so who who needs a forensic account? How would you how would you explain that process?
2: Someone who needs a forensic account in their divorce is someone with a complicated money situation where you might need someone to testify in court. If you do get to the point of going to trial someone who can really sort out those numbers, um, unravel maybe a tangled mess. And so when I'm working with people one-on-one in their divorces, it's people who are higher earnings, higher asset values. They maybe have a business or two that's involved. They maybe have a handful of rental properties, handful or more, Mm -hmm. um, they might have some trusts and things like that. They might have, you know, ten bank accounts that they're dealing with because they have different business interests and things like that. So those complicated situations are the ones that need a forensic accountant.
1: Wow. And and how long do you typically work with a client in that situation from from start to finish? How long is it? I how long does it typically last?
2: Many of the divorce cases that I do, I complete my work in sixty to ninety days. There are others that might tend towards six months to a year, depending on how early I come in in the process. Unfortunately, attorneys often bring me in a little bit late, mm. uh, which means that my work has to be compressed into a very short time frame. Now, the one benefit of bringing me in late is they probably have all the financial documents they're going to get at that point. So we're not waiting on things. In yes. some of those cases where I come in earlier, some of our waiting is for, for documents that are are you know, we're waiting to come in from subpoenas and things like that.
1: Okay. Okay. And and I know that listeners are thinking this, but what kind of costs are associated with this process?
2: So I like to say typically uh, a forensic account is going to start around $10,000 for the most basic case that they'll work on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the cases that I work on for divorces typically between twenty-five and thirty-five thousand dollars of fees, but I have done cases that have gotten into six figures and above in fees. Right. Yeah, obviously it depends on how many moving parts there are, right? Yes,
1: yeah. And do you do you work with clients across the country? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and how can you, when you think about a, a divorce proceeding in general? How can someone maybe save money in the legal process? Are there any tips there?
2: Certainly it's by being very judicious with your time that you spend with your attorney because they're almost always billing you by the hour. So if you have questions for them, you want to group those questions. You don't want to be emailing or calling every day. Maybe build up a list of questions and then send those over in one email. Be prepared for your meetings with with an agenda for yourself of things that we need to talk about and kind of stick to that agenda. Remember that your attorney is not your therapist. So your attorney is not there to listen to you tell the long story about how hurt you were through the process of your marriage ending. While that is very upsetting and, you know, it's in a very emotional time. I want you to make the most of your attorney's time and talk about the legal issues with your attorney. So that's one way. Yeah. And then the other way is to do things in your divorce on your own rather than paying your attorney or his para- his or her paralegal to do it. So that's where something like the divorce money guide might come in. You're not hiring a forensic accountant. You're not having the attorney's office go through your bank statements. You're going through them yourself. That's one way to really save thousands of dollars.
1: Very interesting point. Being more organized and more efficient with your time.
2: Yes. And who wants to pay an attorney an hour to sort through bank statements and put them in order by date. That's just silly to do when you could do that yourself. Absolutely. Okay. No, that's great.
1: And um, I I probably should have asked this earlier on, but I wanted to sort of save it for last. But are there any um, examples of hidden money that you can share with the listeners?
2: Oh gosh, I have so many examples of hidden <laughs> yeah. money. Here's what I'll tell you. I'm, I'm going to give a more general answer to it rather than giving a, a full-blown story of a, a specific individual. Okay. What I see most commonly in the cases that I work on is the secret bank account, the secret credit card, and the spending on an affair partner. And that spending on an affair partner can escalate pretty quickly. Affairs are not free. Okay, a one-night stand might be free, But when you have an ongoing relationship, there are meals out, there are hotels, there are gifts, there are trips, there are all sorts of things that money gets spent on. And every dollar that is spent, half of that is yours. And so unraveling those kinds of things, while it's very painful, and I'm sure it's very hurtful to go through the statements and see this spending on someone else, it's also a necessary part of getting your fair share of the money in the divorce. And so that's what I most commonly am seeing in cases that I'm working on. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I'm, if you're listening, I'm nodding my head because I um, you hear these stories, we've all heard these stories and it's um, and I, it's amazing how true they are. And again, it's just there, it's right there in plain sight for mm-hmm. us to you know, be aware of and manage. So thank you where can individuals find you and, and where can they find this red flag quiz as well that you mentioned?
2: I'm so easy to find. I can Mm -hmm. be found at fraudcoach.com because I like to say I am your fraud coach during your divorce. And I've made a page just for your listeners. It's fraudcoach.com forward slash women. And on that page, they'll find the red flag quiz. So they can take that three minute quiz to find out how at risk they are financial fraud in their marriage there. They're also going to see my book, find me the money, which is the story of Jackie, a woman going through divorce and her husband was having an affair and she needs to find out what did he spend the money on? And is there any hidden money Mm -hmm. hint? There was hidden money and Jackie (laughs) did find it. And they'll also see the divorce money guide there too. So they can take a look at that if that's something, you know, if anything that I said today resonated, you know, divorce is a really difficult time considering divorce is a difficult time, but getting your arms around your money situation is so important because you cannot get a fair settlement in your divorce unless you know exactly what has been going on with the money.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned this earlier, but I'd say the same thing in terms of my roles Too way too often women or just in general come to professionals too late. And so I would highly encourage, even if you're in the thought process to touch base with Tracy and no one has ever dedicated a webpage to us before. So thank you. That's awesome. You're
2: welcome. (laughs) Well, it makes it so much easier to find the resources that we've talked about, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, I appreciate it. Tracy, thank you so much for your time and for the information. Um, It was incredibly valuable and um, all the best to you with your, you know, with
2: with your money guide. You had some great questions and it was fun being here. Thanks for having me.
0: Please see the disclosures in the description of the podcast. This is not investment advice and should not be construed as such. Thank you for listening to Women on Wealth by women for women. Stay up to date by subscribing to iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more, please visit www.julinaobovie.com
1: or join us on Facebook and LinkedIn.